Brothers, we're looking at Titus chapter 1 uh, as we continue in our study, and I would love it if somebody's willing to read this chapter, Titus 1, 1 through 16, we'll get, begin our study. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silent, since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit, for any good work. All right, thank you. Um, so we just did some overview uh, last time. Uh, how far do we get beyond that? Uh, do we go into verse 1 through 4? Do we finish that? No? Yes? No? Almost. Almost. All right, well, I'll tell you what. Let's just zoom in on um, verse 4. I think, I think we talked about verse 3, but verse 4. And I just want to ask one question. He, you know, he says, grace and peace to you, all the time. Paul, Paul, this is his regular way of beginning epistles. What is the significance of that phrase um, to you, grace to you? He's coming as an ambassador of Christ, bringing the, expressing the grace that we have. Okay. He's a messenger on behalf of that grace. Um, as you're thinking about this expression, grace to you, I would also keep in mind what James says, uh, but he gives us more grace. For the scripture says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now that phrase, more grace, is provocative. Um, do we Christians who have already been justified by the grace of God need more grace? Yes. Apparently we do. So then what is grace? 
How do we understand it? If we need more of it, what is it? It's more Jesus. It's more God. It's in, in our lives. It is something we can't earn. Okay. okay. To limitless coverage for our sin. Okay. I would, I would urge you to think of grace in two senses. One is a disposition in the heart of God toward you, a positive disposition to do you good, to be your friend and not your enemy, to do you good, to bless you. And then the gifts that flow particularly from that disposition. So he is disposed to do you good, and then he does you good, and all of the good he does you day by day could be called grace from God. Does that make sense? So every good Bible study you go to is grace to you, right? Every good sermon you hear is, is grace. Every time you confess sin to God and he forgives you, that's more grace. So there's all different kinds of grace. There's converting grace, which you'll never need again. If you're a Christian, that happened once for all. And there's justifying grace, and that you won't need again either. That's once for all. But there's sanctifying grace, and you need rivers of that. All right? There's covering grace, which you need every time you sin. All right? And all of these are different aspects of God's grace. Now, how is an epistle from Paul grace to you then in that light? Remember, it's a combination of a settled disposition in God to do you good and then the individual gifts that come flow from or flow from that disposition. How is an epistle like Titus grace to you? Well, Paul is um, addressing <clears throat> those who are already have experienced the saving grace. Right. But that sanctifying grace you just mentioned, use that term, um, that's the grace that, that um, God has uh, taught to Paul, to <clears throat> Christ has taught to Paul in some way, to convey to us and we need it all the time and he's a good instructor amen i think i love that um and, and james links it to the statement you know he gives us more grace that's why the scripture says god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble now how is there humility in reading an epistle from paul why does it take humility to read it we're suggesting that we need knowledge and information. Yeah, we're lacking something. We're not finished yet. So if you're humble about yourself, you're going to want to read Titus. You're going to want to come to this Bible study. You're going to want to come and hear good preaching. Why? Because you're not finished yet. You need more. It's not enough. You can imagine some arrogant person saying, I don't need that. I know enough. I know enough doctrine. I know enough Christianity. And I've been doing this for years. I don't need any more. You should never get to that point because God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And the way that you get more grace, first and foremost, is by the word of God. And you come hungry, right? You come like, feed me. I need this. I need to hear. So you should come to this Bible study saying there's going to be something today, many, many things even, that I needed to hear. And that's how God gives us more grace. And so he says grace to you. And what about the word peace? Peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. How do we understand that? Grace and peace to you. Oh, because he has peace to with authority on God because he's set apart by God. He didn't go to school to learn. God gifted him. And so, in a sense, God is speaking to me. He's speaking to us. Uh, which gives me a peace in my heart that, that 
Almighty God recognizes me. God has called me. He wants me to understand what he's saying to me. And that gives me some peace. Yeah, I would say peace, there are two aspects of peace with God. One is a status of peace, similar to that between two nations that have diplomatic relations and comfortable relations and are not at war with each other, like the United States and Canada, for example. We're at peace with Canada. Canada's at peace with us, right? So we are at peace. Is that true between us and God? Is God at peace with us or is he at war with us? I'm talking about us as Christians. Is God at peace with us or is he at war with us? At one, at one time we're enemies. But that's what Romans 5.1 says. Since we have been justified by faith, we have what? Peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's a status of peace. Can that be improved upon? Can you have more peace with God in that sense? Yeah. Really? All right, I don't think so, but uh, I'll be, all right. Can we be more at peace with Canada in the sense of diplomatic relations and not at war? The answer is no. It's a binary thing. I'm not saying can the relationship be uh, quali quali uh, qualitatively improved. That's my second experience of peace. And because I haven't defined it yet, that's why you could say, yes, we could have more peace with God. I look on Romans 5.1 as you're either justified or you're not, and you either have peace with God or you don't. I mean, wouldn't you say it's true that God's either your enemy or he's not? Yes. And that's a binary thing. Now, the second comes from Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In that case, the peace of God is juxtaposed against anxiety. Be anxious for nothing, but be peaceful. Have a sense or a feeling of peace. A peacefulness that comes over your heart and soul. Now let me ask you that. Could that be improved in your life? A sense of peacefulness in your walk with God, definitely. And does that come and go? It does. It comes and goes. I mean, if you, if you sin, you're not going to feel at peace with God. You're going to feel that he might be coming after you with the rod of discipline. That's, you know, he's still at peace with you. You're still his child. So those are two different things. I really believe that the first is binary. It's one or zero, yes or no. Either God's at peace with you or at war with you. Either he is your father and the lover of your soul and your friend and all that and therefore at peace with you, or he is your enemy and you're under his wrath, etc., because you're outside his will. You see what I'm saying? One or the other. And you don't come in and out. Don't come in and out. But the other is a sense or a feeling of peacefulness. And that, that comes and goes. All right? Now, I don't know which of the two these is here when he says grace and peace to you. But I think reading the epistle of Paul will give you a greater sense of peacefulness. But it also is part of your awareness of justification peace that God's at peace with us. We're no longer enemies. And we'll never be enemies again. So anyway, that's grace and peace. Peace would be the one there's, there, there's no condemnation. No condemnation. The other peace would be increase in faith, build up my faith. Right. Uh, walking in righteousness 
in a more built-up faith every day as we stay in the Word. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, at one time, as someone once said a moment ago, at one time we were God's enemies, and now we're not. Right? I mean, you can't, you can't be an adopted child of God one moment and God's enemy later. That's impossible. That's crossing over from death to life and then back from life back to death again. And so you're hopping that river back and forth. That is a faulty view of salvation. You are born again, adopted, and secure. And God is at peace with you and will be forever. He will never be at war with you again, ever. For it says in Romans 5, if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life, right? So that implies we were at one time enemies, we are now reconciled. So you're either enemies or reconciled. Would you agree with that? It's one or the other. But that feeling of peacefulness comes and goes. Some of it has to do with how well you manage anxieties in your life, how well you manage problems in your life, how well you obey Philippians 4, 6, and 7. Be anxious for nothing, but give it to God in prayer. Cast your burdens on the Lord. Yeah. Isn't uh, grace and peace kind of an a image of sanctification and, and glory, uh, salvation and sanctification? Something that happens at one time establishes the relationship, but it can be honed in sanctification and drawn closer and closer. And so I think grace and peace are aspects of that. Amen. I'm thinking of that story. You remember, uh, remember Jehu, who God sent um, to kill two wicked kings? Remember this? And there's Jezebel. And remember, she says, is it peace, Jehu? Well, was it peace? No. <laughs> that was her la- one of her last statements on earth. <laughs> you know, and so eunuchs grabbed her and threw her out of the upper story window, and that was not peace for her. I mean, she was whatever. So, you know, but think about um, Jesus' birth, right? And the angel, angel comes and says, Today in the town of David there is born to you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And then suddenly a great company of the heavenly Host? What does that mean, host? What's a host? Someone who welcomes you to their... That's one sense of the word. But a huge host, if you're on the walls of a city and you see a host on the plains outside the walls, what does the host mean in that case? It's an army. That's an army. That's what the host means. So there was an army of angels that suddenly appeared. Should the shepherds have been afraid? Maybe. (laughs) When the armies of, of heaven appear in Revelation 19 and Jesus is riding on a white horse, what does that mean for earth? That's the end of the world, man. That's war. Is it peace? No. Not at all. He doesn't come for that. So the question is, is it peace or not? And, and the whole thing, the peace of, peace of God is found through faith in Jesus Christ. At any rate, that's, you can take this phrase, grace and peace to you. It's in every one of Paul's epistles, over and over. And the gospel ministers grace and peace, and it also ministers a sense of grace and peacefulness to us. Any other questions about that? Uh, I've heard it said that grace and peace is also like a Greek and a Hebrew. So he's writing to the Jews and Gentiles. Is that I've heard of it, but I, I like it. Thank you. <laughs> I'll tuck that one away. <laughs> and we'll use it. But yeah, I mean, he's writing to a mixed group. All right, let's. It's interesting that in both words, I heard a pastor years ago, breaking, breaking both the words down. Um, 
you think about the first letter of grace um, that stands for uh, generosity or generous. And think about the first letter of peace that's providence. So God provides. You think about the first seven letters of providence is provide. So God is also generous, but not only is that, provides. That's helpful to remember for us in English. Of course, Paul didn't write in English, um, but you know, for us as we read it, it's helpful to remember that. Thank you. All right, now let's get to verses 5 through 9. The reason I left you in Crete, Paul says. Titus, he's speaking to Titus, his true son in the faith. The reason I left you in Crete was to do a job. I gave you a job to do. What was it? What was the reason he left, Paul left Titus in Crete? to appoint elders in every town. Now, the word appoint, sometimes uh, he says, straighten out what is left unfinished. What was that? We're not quite sure. Um, but just some church work, some gospel work. He left him there as his, as his delegate, as his representative, um, to look after unfinished matters, whatever that was. And then to appoint or establish, perhaps, elders in every town as I directed you. So that's, uh, that's the reason, that's the task. Now what is the significance of the fact that Paul wanted Titus to establish or ordain or appoint elders, plural, in every town? Singular. Sounds as, as though the churches may have not been set up mm-hmm. according to scripture and he wanted to be sure that uh, the approach to elders was you know, James, or as it says here, set up from the way so the churches would be founded across this. Yeah, so he's, he's doing church work here. He wants the elders there. Um, any other sense of this plurality thing? I, I, I left you to appoint elders plural in every town. I assume the unfinished work was that appointment of elders. Sounds good. And do you think this argues for plural elders in every local church? Yes. Yeah, the only other alternative is that there are going to be many local churches in every town. Right? I mean, that's a, those are the two logical options. I left you to appoint elders, plural, in every town. If you had a single elder for each local church, the only way you're going to get that is many local churches in every town. I don't think Paul would have considered that, especially uh, if they're very small towns. Right? So I think this argues, as many other verses do, for example, James, he says, if anyone is sick, you should call the elders, plural, of the church to anoint him with oil and pray over him. That argues for plural elders in one church. The same thing um, in Acts 20, where Paul sent for the elders, plural, of the church at Ephesus, the church singular. So let's imagine then that those three passages, this one and those other two, imply strongly Plural eldership in every local church. What's the significance of that? Plural elders in every local church. Well, it says that when two or more are praying together, there's a special connection of communications. Okay. If you're doing it by yourself, not that it's not good. Okay. It seems the, the framework that he pictures Christ setting out as a as a healthy church mm-hmm. to have a duplicity, to have a, you know, a, a number of elders and not just a plural uh, single leader. It seems the task requires more than one person. Yeah. And, and, but not just anybody either. Right, so this is what we call uh, polity, 
the word polity means government, church government, the way by which a church is governed. Um, all human in institutions need authority structures. They need leadership. I mean, you can't just have, you know, whatever goes. And so there's going to be leadership. Um, we here at First Baptist Church in Durham believe in a plural elder pattern of leadership. The overwhelming majority of evangelical churches have a single elder model, all right? So the senior pastor is the spiritual leader of the church. Um, plural leadership is an anomaly in the world, all right? It's not normal. Imagine, for example, let's think a uh, military situation. Let's, uh, I think, like, let's say the Battle of Midway, all right? Let's imagine every aircraft carrier had a plural leadership during the battle. What do you think that would be like? What would, what would the effects be? <laughs> Why would that be a problem if you had like seven commanders of the aircraft carrier? Very confusing. And decisions are made by deliberation and discussion and a vote, um, or even better, a seeking of total unanimity during the battle. Uh, what, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. It's a loss. It's a loss. All right. Um, within the Christian family, do we see uh, that the husband and wife have equal authority to one another? No, we don't. In the Old Testament, do we see the pattern of a man of God, like a Moses or a Joshua, leading the people of God consistently. That's the regular pattern. Then it goes from that to judges, and it goes from that to a king. So the normal pattern of the man of God, and you hope he's a godly man, you want him to be a godly man, some of the kings were good and some were bad, Right? but that was the pattern. Now in the New Testament, here I am sitting in this chair arguing for a group leadership thing. Um, and that's, uh, it's, I don't think I would do it except that I have these verses that imply plural leadership in every, every local church. But the more I've gone on, the more beautiful it seems to me. I believe in not only plural eldership, but congregationalism. So what is that? Congregationalism is the final authority of everything in the church. The top-level authority is the church itself. The people are the church, the local church. Not a grouping of local churches, like an archdiocese or something like that, or a presbytery where you have uh, elders uh, from different local churches who meet together in a session, and they decide what will happen in each of those local churches. That's the Presbyterian system. Um, or the Episcopal system, which the Roman Catholic Church has, the Greek Orthodox, and a lot of the spin-offs, the Anglicans, the Methodists, most of those are Episcopal, which is a top-down, one guy in charge, and then all the way down. So who's the one guy in charge of the Roman Catholic Church? Not meaning any disrespect. The Pope, all right? He is the one guy in charge. Who's the one guy in charge of the Anglican Church? Maybe you don't know this. King Charles, or is that still his name? Did he change his name? King Charles. Elizabeth's son. You know, she was the head of the Anglican Church before that. That goes all the way back to who? Who was the first? Henry VIII. Henry VIII wanted to continue to, as a Roman Catholic. He was no stinking Lutheran, that's for sure. Um, and uh, but he couldn't get what he wanted from the Pope, which was a divorce or an annulment of his marriage, so he could have a legal heir from his mistress. Um, and so he basically fired the Pope and became his own Pope. Henry was that kind of man, all right? So he became basically the head of his own church. Anyway, that's the Episcopal system, right? Congregationalism says that the final authority in every local church is the church itself by democratic processes. The strongest proof of this is church discipline, 
right, in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go show him his fault, um, just the two of you. If he listens to you, you're fine, but if not, go take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If you will not listen to them, who should you tell it to? The church, and that is the local church. You do realize that, because you can't talk to the universal church. Have you ever tried? Very hard to do, all right? Uh, that mystical union of all believers living and dead that make up the body of Christ, hard to find the bride of Christ for a conversation. <laughs> I don't know how we would do it. That's definitely the local church. And if he doesn't listen to the local church, who should you go to next? Who's above the local church in that progression in Matthew 18? I won't burden you with these trick questions I ask all the time. There's no one. That's the end of the line. Treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. It's the end of the line. He doesn't have another court of appeal. That is a strong congregational verse. You see that? Congregationalism. There is no higher authority above the local church. So I believe in congregationalism, but I also believe in plural eldership. So how do I understand that? Well, I use, like, fingers like this. So imagine this is the congregation, and these are elders. The congregation is over the elders to establish them in their role, to give them the authority, each of them individually as an elder, by a vote. They vote them into power. That's the very thing we just did at the end of the worship service this past Sunday with two men. Do you remember? You were there. Remember those ballots we checked? All right, we gave those two men authority to be elders in, in the church. Then the thing flips, and the church follows the lead of the elders in the Hebrews 13, 17 pattern. Someone read that for me, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Okay, so what's the basic command the author of Hebrews is giving to the church there? Obey your leaders and submit, submit to them. Follow them. Is he talking about governmental leaders there or church leaders? Spiritual. Definitely spiritual leaders because they're going to give an account for your soul. That's not something a government leader does. So obey your leaders and submit to them, follow their leadership. So again, going back to my, my hand. So you got the congregation over the elders to establish them in their role. Once they're established, then the church's job is to do what with those elders? Obey them, follow them as they lead. However, the church needs to keep making sure that they're leading biblically. So the church does have the right to flip it back over and discipline an elder if he sins, right? Church retains the authority to evict an elder from eldership or from membership based on sin. So the church discipline procedure continues in reference to the elder. But as long as the elders are godly and as long as the elders are leading biblically, the church's job is to follow them, obey them in the Hebrews 13, 17 pat pattern. Does that make sense? So that's how I understand church government. And the plural eldership is a beautiful thing because there's accountability within that group if it's done right. See what I'm saying? Um, the there's no one individual who has access to all the finances and who can, who can become a tyrant and all that. You have a built-in checks and balances within the plural eldership. See? You see what I'm saying? And within the congregationalism that the elders can be evicted from their office if they sin. 
So there's checks and balances, there's authority, um, and, and yet the, uh, the people are led and governed well, and they don't just run amok or do whatever they want, but they're focused on mission by the leadership of the elders. So the way I've said before, you know how they say power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. There's a corrupting power, a corrupting e effect of power. I believe that plural eldership in the context of congregationalism is the best way that sinners can lead other sinners. It's given the sinfulness of man, it is the best way that, that all of that is mitigated. And I believe in it. I think it's a good system. Can you speak to how we as Baptists got off track by electing deacons to be spiritual leaders rather than elders? Well, it's a historical question you're asking, and I don't know how it happened. I don't know that plural eldership has always been the norm in Baptist churches. I think that the single elder model, because of the Old Testament pattern of the man of God, the visionary leader, has been the, the norm. It's been the, it's been the standard. And so you've got the man of God, right? And then you've got others to come around and help him in his vision, his leadership. That's the general way that evangelical churches have seen leadership. Does that make sense? And I don't think it's essentially wrong. It's not like it's slam dunk that's wrong. I think if it were wrong, godly people would have changed it a long time ago. So I think there's always been a minority of Baptist churches that have had plural eldership. I think they generally saw it as Presbyterian and not Baptist. So, I don't know. I think generally they, they thought that the congregationalism of a Baptist church, the democratic religion aspect, was enough. So you have the leader and then the church would vote on stuff, lots of stuff. So probably they did not understand the way the scripture talks about it or skipped over it. All it would do is live. Right, well, what I would say about the Bible in general is not everything is equally clear in the Bible. Plural eldership is not a slam dunk, no doubt about it, taught 75 places in the Bible. It just isn't. You have to find places like James and the sickness passage and all that and know what you're looking for to see it. And that's why a lot of godly people are single elder model. Like Danny, Danny Aiken is a predominantly a single elder model guy. He's not a bad man. I love him. He's a good brother in Christ. He's a faithful teacher of the word of God. He's a single elder model guy. Uh, and there are a lot of them. I think it's the norm in the Southern Baptist Convention. I don't think it's a bad thing as long as the single elder is a good man. If the single elder is a humble, good man, you'll, you'll be all right, all right? But if he's not, if he's like Stephen Furtick, who took that I am statement, all right? This is the worst little preaching I've ever heard in my life, all right? He was talking about the I am, remember that? Where God uh, spoke in the burning bush. And he said, who shall I say is sending us? Tell them I am. And Stephen Furtick said, when God said, I am, he's saying to all of us, you are. <laughs> I don't think there's ever been any little moment in preaching that has so missed the point of a text as that one. That is not what God is saying by saying, I am. He is saying, I am unique in the universe. I am the creator of everything, and you're all creatures. He's not saying you're all like me. Anyway, he sounded kind of Mormon at that point. Anyway, go ahead. In the single elder model, the issue is there's no continuity of leadership. So if you have a really good man and that man dies for powers and movements, then if the leadership then falls to whatever committee or board or whatever, and that's just basically a popularity contest, but there's no continuity. 
no matter how good you do, unless they reproduce themselves. Sure. Yeah, I, I agree with you. The, uh, at our, in our church, like if I were to literally die, you know, I had a heart attack back in 2020, if that were to happen again, our church would uh, continue in the same pattern because we have 12 elders who all see the polity the same way as, as me, and they would seek to get uh, a faithful preacher who would carry on the same kind of ministry here. And I think that's a good situation. I really do. Um, furthermore, they're going to keep shepherding me and, and each other and the church in that same pattern. So it's, it's a very, very good s system, and I, I think it's beautiful. The, the only one better is Jesus himself directly leading all of us face-to-face -face and none of us having a sin nature. That'll be heaven, all right? Uh, but in the meantime, I think this is a good system. Any other questions about plural eldership in the context of congregationalism? All right, so in that setting, where did the new elders come from? In, in a plural elder scenario, how do you get the replacement elders or the next generation of elders? Where do they come from? The mission calls for teaching them to obey everything. Teaching them to obey everything. Would you be willing to read 1 Timothy 3.1? The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. All right, so that's an overarching aspiration given to the men of the church to be an overseer. I'll talk about overseer, elder, but let's just say that's elder, which it is. If you have that ambition, you desire a noble or beautiful task. So that sets before the men of the church an aspiration to be an elder someday. Whether you ever are or aren't is not the point. The qualifications that are listed in both Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3 will do you no harm, putting it gently. They'll do you all kinds of good. You know, to be blameless, husband of one wife, uh, you know, as you said last week, Rick, self-controlled in all areas. That's just Christianity is what it is. And so the idea then is what we consider a pipeline of future elder candidates, a pipeline. And who would be in that pipeline? Any man who wants to be an elder, right? Any man who wants to be an elder. And so the elders, the existing elders, then help those men get to that level. They train them up, teach them the word of God, right? Get them ready to serve. And then when they get old and die or can't serve anymore, the next generation is ready to come on up. Does that make sense? And that's, I think it's, it's a beautiful thing to see that. All right, so where then are search committees? Have you guys ever heard of a search committee? All right, what's a search committee? A small group of people who are selected to... To do what? To look and to provide candidates for consideration. What's your guess at what I think the future of search committees is at First Baptist Church, Durham, North Carolina? Zero. Zero. So where then will the next senior pastor come from? What group will find that individual? The elders will. And they will do the vetting, whatever. Will they be able to establish him in his position of authority at the church? No. no. Who does that? The congregation. the congregation will. But the congregation trusts the elders in this system the way the, the other congregation trusted the search committee. You see what I'm saying? But this is a better group of people because they're vetted. How is a search committee vetted? What filters are there for a search committee? 
they're a church member and they were voted in by the church to, to do that role. But there's no, there's no array of qualifications. There's no attributes of a search committee member. They usually try to get representation like women, older, younger, athlete, non-athlete. You know, they try to get a group. Like some of these photos of six people that covers all the areas of humanity you can have in six people. Have you ever seen groups like that? They're all like at a party and there's like, you know, there's an Asian and there's a black woman and there's someone in a wheelchair and there's whatever. You know, so search committees will do that sometimes. Try to represent different pockets or special interest groups in the local church. Have you ever heard of that kind of thing? What's that? Rich, poor, you know, older. <laughs> one of every, yeah, and put it on big search committee, like 31 people on the search committee. What do you think? <laughs> it's, a, it's inefficient. So I would say then I believe that the next elders come from the existing elders. But there's a problem with that. Let's say you're a missionary and you're going to an unreached people group. Would you like eventually to have plural elders leading a congregation, congregational church? If you're a Baptist and you believe in this polity, is that what you want? How do you get there? There's no existing group of elders, so how do you get there? One at a time. Start with the pastor and then. Okay. Well, read read what uh, first uh, read what Titus one five says. The reason I left you in Crete was to do it. Put what remained in order. Keep going. And appoint. And do what? Appoint. Huh. Uh, Titus four. Titus picked him. So is that a lasting? Methodology, I think not. That's more like fire starter, if you know what I mean. He knows what he's looking for. They're not even Christians before Paul got there. Then they're immature Christians, and you can't have them as elders because you can't be a recent convert, right? So you have to have an existing leader who then is able to appoint them. I don't think that's the norm, but it is the beginning of the pattern. Does that make sense? So he left them in, in Crete to appoint elders. And he's passing on the authority, his authority from God to Titus. Right, yeah. Yeah, he's his delegate. He's representing, representing you know, him. So that's, that's what they do. They, they appointed the elders. Now we're going to get to the qualifications. Any questions about that? So I've given you the sense of the overall... You know, I could say more about how we do our business. Now, this is actually pretty fascinating. How do plural elders make decisions? What do you think we seek on an important decision? What are we looking for as the 12 elders are discussing? Let's, I'll give you a topic to, should we borrow a lot of money to renovate our building? And if so, how much? How do we come to that decision? How much do we want a unanimous decision? I'm not, I'm not asking how we get there, but how much do we want one? How much do we want the elders to be able to say to the church, we all agree this is what we should do? 100%. Yeah, we're, we're seeking that. We, we want to be able to... One thing we don't want is a seven to five vote and the five elders saying, want you all to know, we didn't agree. Why would that be really bad for the church? It's divisive. And it starts factions. So the elders are going to consistently, if not always, present unity to the church. We all believe this is what we should do. Very interesting to do that during the pandemic, all right? Pandemic chewed up and spit out single elders all over the country. It was hard on single elders because there was no way to please everybody in the church on that one. Couldn't be done. 
but it, you have more protection with the plural elders, you know, more protection. So the question is, how do you get to unity? I believe the unity is patterned after the Trinity, all right? Father, Son, and Spirit. How do they come to a decision? <laughs> do they vote? Do you think they vote? Two to one. <laughs> God is one means they have never even slightly disagreed with each other about anything. It's amazing when you think about it. Should Christians seek that level of unity? Should we be one as the Father and the Son are one? We should. So we elders seek that on every decision. Therefore, you need a certain kind of man because not every decision is easy to come to, Right? Should First Baptist Church Durham borrow a huge amount of money to renovate the building? Is that as equally clear as, is Jesus the Son of God? No. No way. So it is possible to disagree on that and still be brothers in Christ who love each other and believe other things, right? How do them, those guys, come to agreement? Well, you need a certain kind of man. You need a man who understands a hierarchy of issues and doctrines. And on the lower stuff, he's going to be humble. He's going to have his convictions. He's going to argue his views, but he won't hold on to them as ground on which to shed blood. There are people like that. They see every issue equally clearly. Every issue. Every, every issue is top drawer. All right? A hill on which to die. Have you ever met people like that? I mean, every single issue is that clear. All right? Those people wouldn't do well in plural eldership because on secondary tertiary issues and below they're going to fight 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 and in the end they're like I cannot go with you guys they're the most likely to say to the church I want you all to know I didn't agree because they didn't they didn't win all right so then how do we get there what we do is we discuss in preliminary sense we're looking at the renovation of the building first of all why should we renovate an older building? We'll go through that. What are the reasons that we would do that? Or should we just run it into the ground? You guys know that in the physical world, when you walk on carpet, it wears out. Have you noticed? When you open and shut a door, it eventually needs to be replaced. All right, suppose you decide because you, have, you think money should only go for missions and for the relief of the poor and needy, you're never gonna renovate your building. Fast forward X number of years down the line. What's the situation at that point? You got a lot of water on the Everything's falling apart. <laughs> and you have basically borrowed the building from your great grandkids and you handed them over a jalopy of a building because you wouldn't keep it, keep it up. So once we argue like that, all right, it is right for us to spend money renovating the building. How much and what? So then we would walk through that. And this is how we sought to do our work. People would freely share their convictions, their ideas. We would get a sense of where everyone was at. And then we would just pray and, and be done for the night. We didn't have to decide. It's not, it's not the battle of Midway and the bridge of an aircraft carrier. We don't have to decide right now what to do. We can wait. Meanwhile, we're seeking unity. And let's imagine on any issue, let's say with 12 guys, you've got eight guys who see it all one way and four guys who see it differently. The eight guys need to listen carefully to the four guys and their concerns. What are your concerns? Why, you know, draw out from them. Ask good questions. Try to understand their views. Don't try to refute them. Don't try to refute them. Try to understand them. They might be right. Draw from them what their concerns are. Ask lots of questions. Then pray for unity, pray for one another, and adjourn. Come back together in two weeks. 
Meanwhile, have all the conversations you want. Burn the phone lines if you want. Do whatever you want to do. Talk to each other. Pray. Ask for God to lead. Now we come back together. We go back to the, uh, we go back to the uh, four and, and we go to the eight. Have, have the positions changed all li- uh, at all? Have we moved from eight, four to seven, five? If so, you better slow down. Those four are carrying the day. They're making arguments that are not being refuted. They're, but if you've gone from 8-4 to 9-3, the pressure swings on the three now to see what about their position. They might be wrong. And to be humble about it. And to start listening to their nine brother elders that see it differently than they do. And be willing to say, hey, on this one, I might just be hearing God wrong. I might, my, my view is not right, right or wrong, but I just think you guys. And then in the end, you're 12-0. You see how, how that works? Through more discussion, whatever. You don't have the three doing the persistent widow thing like they're trying to drill through granite. And it's like, I'm not giving an inch here. You guys haven't listened. Let me say it again. Don't do that. We already heard you. We heard you. We've been thinking for two weeks about what you said. It's not carried the day. So then you just got to be humble. So we got to filter out the guys up front who are going to be every hill is a hill on which to die. You've got to filter those guys out. They might be great guys, but they're not going to work well with plurality. Does that make sense? That's how we make our decisions. So it, it boils down to being a good steward of what God has gifted us with and ability. I would say most of the leadership decisions the elders make are stewardship decisions. How should we spend the time, the energy, and the money of this church. The word spend means you've used it for something. What should we use it for? That's, I think that's what the elders decide. We're not deciding doctrine. We protect doctrine. But we are deciding judgment calls, wisdom calls. And that's what we're trying to do. What, should we, what new ministry should we venture out on here in Durham? What should we do? Does that make sense? So that's what we're seeking. All right. Yeah. Andy, I'm just curious. Um, our the elders or some of the elders tied to specific areas of expertise uh, within the context of the 12 like maybe we don't seek it we don't seek it but they have it and sometimes i think churches maybe seek like financial i wouldn't do it i wouldn't do it you're looking for godly men and here's here's what i would say anybody this is what i want to say anybody who meets the criteria of first timothy 3 and titus 1 and who is acting like an elder probably should be an elder we don't have a number we're not looking for a number of elders. We're looking for men who are elders. And we're just getting out of the way of what God's done in that person's life. So, you know, they, God's raised them up. They are eldering. So let's just recognize that that's who they are. But then we find that some have business acumen, right? Some have medical training. So like how important were the three medical, medically trained doctors during the pandemic? We listened to them. How important were the business guys when we needed to borrow three and a half million dollars from various lending agencies? I don't know anything about that stuff. But we had elders that were really good at that kind of thing. See what I'm saying? Uh, one of them, uh, <laughs> Chris noticed that the, the city of Durham was cha- charging, suddenly charging for parking around the city. That, that had not been his whole experience. And then he noticed the city of Durham was parking in our lot for free. So that elder went uh, to people he knew personally at City Hall and said, hey, you guys have put a highlighter pen on on the value of parking here. We'd kind of like to do that same thing. And so he negotiated a deal which helped us pay the interest on the loan for the three years that we needed to pay interest on the loan. It was like $150,000 a year for them to park in our gravel lot across the street. That was Chris. 
That's nothing I would have even thought to do. So there are going to be different things. On another topic, when we had to decide what's our policy going to be on child baptism or any other doctrinal issue, probably I and a few other elders are going to come to the fore at that point because on a doctrinal issue, we're going to be able to marshal Scripture a little bit better. Does that make sense? So different ones at different times. Interesting to how the church came to own that property and all, and there was a lot of opposition to that at the time too. I mean, as each one of those properties became available to the, um, there were deacons coming out of the church, but who knew about the value of property and so forth. And so anyway, they somehow or other uh, got the church to, to buy that property all but one lot. It sticks out like a sore thumb, doesn't it? There's two houses on the corner or whatever. One lot that they didn't would buy because, because it didn't have good water drainage or something. I mean, it was going to be a problem. So they didn't buy that lot, and so somebody else bought the lot, figured out how to do it, and built the building down there. But anyway, church, that's how the church came. But there was, there was opposition to buying uh, that property. When was that? that? The whole thing got, when, when was the lot purchased? When did that happen? Before you came, I know that. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting enough, too, that uh, when when Central Carolina Bank was tearing down the building, it's got nothing to do with what it's made out. It's right there in verse seven. Go, keep going. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> but anyway, when they were when they were taking the building down and everything, there was a, a, a safety place in the bottom of the bank there. You know, the safety deposit thing, and. Uh, I'm not trying to pat myself in the but anyway, they needed an elder to open. The church had a box there, and uh, I was the only elder that was around that uh, had the signature and everything that qualified to open that box. So I opened it and wrapped my arms around it and brought it back to the church, you know, to and they put it in the church safe. In other words, but what was in there was deeds to all that property over there and all across other things and all but uh, that was scary i'll bet jack i mean thank you for doing that um yeah i i picture this you know i i have a speculation um similar to that um uh when paul greets a bunch of people at the end of the um, book of romans he starts with a woman named phoebe and because he greets her first it's estimated that she carried the letter romans to the roman church do you th what, do you, what do you think it would have been like to be Phoebe and realize the church history future that has yet to happen that's rolled up in this scroll called the Book of Romans? Be better for her not to know. You realize what you got there. This is the Book of Romans. This is going to convert Augustine. This is going to convert Luther. You better be careful with this thing. I'm telling you, it was like crazy. So anyway, um, let's, let's look quickly at the qualifications, and let me say one thing, and we'll be done for the day. All right, the reason I left you in Crete was that you should uh, finish, uh, straight out, straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I direct you. Now, an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted uh, with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain, Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught. 
so he can ref uh, encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So if you take all of that, you put it in two big categories. It has to do with his doctrine and his life. His doctrine and his life. Why are both of those important for an elder or an overseer? Doctrine and life. Count confirms that he's a true believer. Okay. Confirms that he's a true believer. The way he's living his life. Knowledge and action. Okay. Jesus said concerning false teachers, by their fruit you'll know them. Look at the fruit of their lives. And so the fruit of this man's life has to do with his marriage, his parenting, and his way of interacting with sin, uh, with uh, sinful things, with, with tastes, uh, habits, with alcohol, food, money, things like that. A self-controlled man, as Rick was pointing out last time. He's, he's not given to passions. He's self-controlled. And he's le leading this upright life. And he has sound doctrine and skillful in it. He's able to refute false teachers. He's got that skillful doctrine, etc. One last thing before we uh, notice. There are two titles given to this role in this passage. What are they? Elder and overseer. Elder and overseer. How can you tell from this passage that they're interchangeable? Who does he begin talking about? I, sa I left you in Crete to appoint who? And then somewhere in the middle he says, now an overseer must be dot, dot, dot. It's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. They're the same thing, all right? They're just different ways of looking. Now, what does the word elder imply about this role, elder? It means, it, the Greek means an older man, but it doesn't, you, you could be a young man. Timothy was young. What does the word elder, though, imply about him? Maturity. Maturity, stability, what's that? Experience, Experience et cetera. Okay, overseer, episkopos, uh, overlooker, overseer. What does that imply? The note in the Bible says bishop. Well, that's just the old English way of the same thing. Be skilp means to oversee. All right, so what, what does it mean, overseer? And I think I've given you this image before. A flock, a shepherd up high on a hill. Why is he up high? Why is he physically above the sheep? Yeah, it's perspective. Yeah, so an overseer is one who can see the big picture. Put it that way. He's able to see the big picture. All right, we are done. Jason, is this your last time with us, brother? We're going to miss you. This brother's going to uh, Georgia uh, to live near family and uh, uh, dearly going to miss you. Would you be willing to close us in prayer? All right, thanks. Father God, we thank you for your word. Lord, it is your word that gives life to, to those who are once your enemies. God, we thank you for the grace and peace we have through Christ. And we thank you for your word that guides us and teaches us so that we can continue to grow in that grace. Lord, I pray for each one of us as men, God, that we would truly let me pray for you too lord i thank you for jason and leslie i thank you for the blessing that they've been to me personally and to this church pray that you would go with him give him encouragement give him a sense of your presence and your purpose in his life protect him and his family and his beautiful his beautiful kids and uh, i just pray that you would uh, keep him safe and, and lead him lord into the pattern of ministry the role of ministry that you have prepared for him in jesus name amen